Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia Tech will offer a new minor that examines the connections between media, culture, and racial politics. So we'll take a deeper dive into the new Black Media Studies minor. Also, it's a new book that reveals a complicated racial history of the Indigenous Creek Nation. Now, those conversations and more, but first this, as you just heard, and if you didn't, you're going to hear a little bit more, the committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of 2021 continue with its second public hearing today. Now, much of today's testimony centered on former President Donald Trump's role and purposely lying that the 2020 election was stolen. Among those testifying today, B.J. Pack, the former Atlanta-based U.S. attorney who abruptly resigned in January of last year. He will later say his resignation was because Trump was going to fire him. Now, here's part of B.J. Pack's testimony. This Q&A is a little over six minutes, and then we'll return to the program. Pursuant to Section 5C8 of House Resolution 503, I now recognize a young woman from California, Ms. Lofgren, for questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before the break, I think you all heard uh, Mr. Barr and Mr. Donahue talk about the false claims that Mr. Trump and his supporters made about suitcases of fake ballots in Georgia. We have a witness here today who thoroughly investigated that issue. Mr. Pack, I want to thank you for appearing before us today. You were appointed by President Trump to serve as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, and you serve from 2017 until January of 2021. You were the lead federal prosecutor there and worked for the Department of Justice under then Attorney General Bill Barr. Now, were you ever asked by Attorney General Barr to investigate claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election? And if so, what were those claims? Thank you, Congressman Lofgren. Thank you for the question. Uh, approximately December 4th, I believe, of 2020, uh, Attorney General Barr and I had a conversation about an unrelated case to the case at issue. At the end of the conversation, Mr. Barr had asked me if I had seen a certain videotape that was being reported in the news where Mr. Giuliani, in a Senate subcommittee hearing that was held the day before, May 3rd, showed a videotape of a purportedly um, a security tape at the State Farm Arena in Atlanta, which is also in Fulton County, in the city of Atlanta. Uh, I'm sorry, city of, uh, yes. At the time, Mr. Barr asked me that he had um, made a public statement that he had not seen any um, 
widespread election fraud that would um, question the um, outcome of the election. And because of the videotape and the serious allegation that Mr. Giuliani was making with respect to the suitcase full of ballots purported in the, the video, he asked me to find out what I could about it because he had envisioned that in some days after our call that he was going to go to the White House for a meeting and then that issue might come up. He asked me to make it a priority to get to the bottom of, uh, to try to substantiate the allegation made by Mr. Giuliani. Uh, thank you. I understand the Georgia Secretary of State's office investigated uh, those State Farm Marina allegations and didn't find any evidence of fraud. What did you find when your office conducted, uh, conducted its own investigation? We found that the suitcase full of ballots, the alleged black suitcase that was being seen pulled from under the table, was actually an, an official lockbox where um, ballots were kept safe. We found out that there was a mistake in terms of a misunderstanding that they were done counting ballots or tallying ballots for the night. And the, the partisan uh, watchers that was assigned by each of the respective parties were announced to send home. But once they realized the mistake, someone from the Secretary of State's office had indicated that, no, 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 we're not done for the night. You need to go ahead and, and continue counting. Um, so once they packed up the lockbox full of ballots, they brought back the official ballot box again and continue to uh, tally the ballots from that, from the, the lockbox. Um, unfortunately, during the Senate hearing, uh, Mr. Giuliani only played a clip that showed them pulling out the official ballot box from under the table um, and referring to that as a smoking gun of fraud in, in Fulton County. But in actuality, in review of the entire uh, video, uh, it showed that that was actually an official ballot box that would kept underneath the, the tables. And then they, we saw them pack up because of the announcement that they thought they were done for the night. And then once the announcement was made that you should continue counting, they brought the ballot box back out and they continued to count. We interviewed, the FBI interviewed the individuals that are depicted in the, the videos uh, that purportedly were double, triple counting of the ballots and determined that uh, nothing irregular happened in the counting and the allegations made by Mr. Giuliani uh, were false. Thank you very much. I'd like to uh, play again um, a testimony from Mr. Donahue who appeared before the committee before today. Mr. Donahue, you, we talked at some length about um, whether or not the White House or the President was informed about the Antrim report. Um, on the um, results of the investigations, the interviews that have gone on on Fulton County, um, how would those results have been communicated uh, to the White House, to the President? This is a Trump DOJ official. I don't know how they were initially communicated. I do know that they came up in subsequent conversations with the President. And Dad Rose and I essentially told him we looked into that, and it's just not true. Okay, so he uh, was in, he I, was informed. I told the president myself that several times in several conversations that these allegations about ballots being smuggled in in a suitcase and run through the machine several times it was not true. That we looked at we looked at the video, we interviewed the witnesses. It was not true. Mr. Pack, after you left the U.S. Attorney's Office on January 4th, 2021, did the next U.S. Attorney there 
I think Mr. Trump's personal pick, Bobby Christine, did he investigate any remaining claims of fraud? And if so, did he find any evidence that supported the president's claims of voter fraud? It is my understanding that Mr. Christine continued any investigations that were pending at the time of my departure, but he was unable to find any uh, evidence of fraud that affected the outcome of the election. So after investigating the president's and Mr. Giuliani's claims about voter fraud in Georgia, is it your view today that there was no evidence of widespread fraud sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome of the election in Georgia? That is correct. Thank you, Mr. Pack. And I want to thank you also for the service that you've given to our country. We appreciate that. That is former Atlanta-based U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, B.J. Pack, testifying. The January 6th Capitol attack hearings will resume this Wednesday. In other news, early in-person voting is now underway in Georgia for the primary runoffs. Voters have one more week to vote in advance of the actual election day, as we hear from WABE Sam Greenglass. Fulton and Gwinnett counties began early in-person voting over the weekend. Cobb County's has been underway since last week. And as of today, every county must make early voting available. Unlike Election Day, you can vote at any early vote center in your county. Check the Georgia Secretary of State's website for locations and hours. Republican voters decided their statewide candidates in May, though there are some runoffs in several congressional races. Democrats still need to pick nominees for lieutenant governor and secretary of state, labor commissioner, and insurance commissioner. Election Day is June 21st. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And speaking of elections, a powerful state lawmaker is backing a request for a GBI investigation into problems with a DeKalb County commission election. And WABE's other politics reporter, Raul Bali, has that. Democratic State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is backing Marshall Orson's request to the GBI to investigate last month's Democratic primary for DeKalb County Commission District 2. On primary night, Orson was one of the two candidates who apparently had advanced to the June 21st runoff. When a number of human errors connected to programming came to light, a hand count of the ballots was done. That showed Orson in third and out of the runoff. Representative Oliver has now sent a letter to GBI Director Vic Reynolds asking for a GBI investigation. I think it's agreed upon by most of the players that there were some errors made by the Secretary of State and there were some errors made by DeKalb County. So we need an independent analysis as to what happened when, when were the mistakes made and when were they not caught or when were they responded to in a correct way or an inappropriate way. Earlier this year, state lawmakers voted to give the GBI the power to launch election investigations. GBI Director Reynolds is expected to make a decision next week. Separately, the Georgia Secretary of State's office is conducting its own investigation. Raul Bally, WABE News. Hundreds of young protesters marched through downtown Atlanta on Saturday to advocate for safer schools through gun control. It's all part of the March for Our Lives protest that happened in cities throughout the nation. As we hear from Emily Wu Pearson, who was at the march, it worked its way through the old Fourth Ward to Woodruff Park downtown. Sarah Dowling doesn't know a world where kids are safe from guns at school. We've grown up doing active shooter drills since before we could even read. The 17-year-old is one of the organizers of the Georgia March for Our Lives and has been active in demanding gun control for years now. My first real experience with gun violence was in 2017 or so when my younger sister's school had a legitimate shooting threat. That was just such a jarring experience that 
it really just made me rethink about everything in society. Dowling just graduated high school and is headed to college. She says she and her peers will continue to organize marches and informational sessions about gun safety and reform. You know, especially in Georgia, it does take a little bit of effort sometimes to get people to want to actually organize for change. But the gun culture is so pervasive that sometimes people just aren't willing to listen in the first place. March for Our Lives calls on voting age adults across the country to vote for leaders who will help curb gun violence. Almost all of the students who marched are too young to vote themselves. Meanwhile, this year, Governor Brian Kemp signed a law that allows gun owners to conceal carry their weapons in public without a permit. But that hasn't stopped Dowling and her peers. She said the country can't end gun violence if people stop trying for change. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. If you're looking for a job, there's a shortage of workers at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. And to remedy the situation, officials are holding a job fair tomorrow, as we hear from WABE's Dormaya Vance. Atlantis Airport is looking to fill at least 2,000 jobs with this summer career fair as the busy travel season approaches. Airport spokesman Andrew Gobeal says the goal is to connect qualified people directly with airport employers. There are still workplaces that need staffers out there, and that's what we're trying to do is bring these workers together. Jobs to be filled include everything from management and concessions to cargo and maintenance. Dormaya Vance, WABE News. That message, especially for my nieces and nephews. And finally... Duval hits one a mile high to left. That one's going to carry out and we go back to back. This is a great... 11 in a row. That's the current win streak for the Atlanta Braves as the team took all four games against the Pittsburgh Pirates, winning 5-3 Sunday at at Truist Park. Keep it going, Braves. Well, like that. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia Tech students can now enroll in the new Black Media Studies minor in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication, also called LMC. Approved last year by the Faculty Senate, Black Media Studies, or BMS as I said, is cited as a, quote, multidisciplinary area of scholarship that connects a variety of, of approaches and methods to study the relationship between media, culture, and racial politics, particularly as it relates to people of African descent, close quote. So we're going to break all that down for those that missed it. Joining me now is Professor Joycelyn Wilson, who teaches in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication. She's been on the program so many times before. Welcome, Professor. Hey, how you doing? Doing all right. Let's begin from the beginning. What is the origin story of Black Media Studies now being offered as a minor? Yeah. So the origin story really begins with um, the former Dean Jacqueline Royster, She's the former dean for the Alvin Allen College at Georgia Tech. And in 2017, um, two of my colleagues, myself and I'm sorry, one of my colleagues, Susanna Morris, we were brought in as target of opportunity hires to begin to think about what a program like this would look like and the benefit of it being in a place like Atlanta 
and the gap that it would feel being at a school of technology where we take these humanistic approaches, humanistic approaches to creating things, making things, um, and there's a film and media program. So really just having multiple conversations about a gap that I believe she noticed as the Dean, right? Mm -hmm. And when we came in, um, we began to think about what a black media studies definition is, let alone a program, like what is that? And so at the time there were only two other programs that we could look to. There is the black media um, studies minor at Indiana, mm -hmm. and there is the combined PhD um, Af in African American Studies and Film and Media Studies at Yale. And so those were really two programs that were out there. And so we realized how fresh the field is and how there is this opportunity to create and curate a minor where students, regardless of major, could come in and take this supplemental set of courses, 15 to 18 hours, that gave them an opportunity to think about culture, media, race, and the intersection of all those um, through a technological perspective um, and add that on as a supplement or complement rather to their majors. Mm -hmm. uh, that was in August of 2019 when we wrote the mission and after COVID, um, May of 2020, I believe, we began to set up, set about having conversations and meeting to draft the first proposal. Many of these courses existed already. Mm -hmm. I taught um, several of them. My colleague, Susanna Morris, she teaches a set of them. Um, uh, Dr. Andre Brock and Mr. Um, Joanne Thornton, the four of us were really the core designers and curators of the classes and how they would be offered through this new minor. And in October of 2021, mm -hmm. we basically went through all of the necessary um, approval uh, benchmarks and we were approved by the Academic Senate for the Institute. And we will offer our first course in the fall. Let me back up a little bit because you mentioned something you said the, at the core of this also is presenting these courses with a technological perspective. And mm -hmm. someone listening may say, well, let's dissect that a little bit further. What are you talking about here? So we're in a, Atlanta is a, a, a city of innovation and technological innovation. Mm -hmm. It's a city of um, social innovation. It's a city of cultural innovation. Um, it's an interdisciplinary place where technology and media has played a role for a very long time. Now, with the city being a place where cultural creators are engaging in new media technologies or using new media technologies to produce um, film, mm -hmm. to produce art, but to also make things um, as... Um, engineers are using a lot of the latest innovative technology and having a cultural perspective in um, doing that. It, Georgia Tech is a place that allows for us to really think about technology in a humanistic way. How do we make things that are for the benefit of um, society, but also how do we critique and analyze products and media um, that don't, 
-hmm. So Atlanta being a place where we have MailChimp, we have Google, we have um, place now Green Bank, we have these, these technological incubators that are in the city. And with Georgia Tech being in the heart of the city, it's an opportunity to collaborate with those communities in a variety of ways. Being that there were only two other institutions that you all could identify that had some similar uh, interdisciplinary course or, or minor here or even a major, how did you all develop the course? Now, you already taught some of these courses, as you mentioned, so you had those, but you, there's I'm looking at the, the courses here. Y'all got a lot. Yeah, so they're 15 to 18 hours. So um, when you have four colleagues, my area of specialization is hip hop studies and digital media. And then you have Dr. Susanna Morris, who um, studies science fiction and Afrofuturism mm -hmm. through this feminist perspective. And then we have Dr. Andre Brock, who um, studies technoculture and cyber culture cultures and then mr john thornton who runs the film and media space where they're producing films and podcasts and all of our work intersects although we have these varying specializations we all make things we all take also teach courses that give us an opportunity to teach about the historic the, the history of black cultural production mm -hmm. the history of race and media literacies, particularly as it relates to, to Black folks. Um, these are courses that were being taught under um, just the LMC minor or major before we carved out this minor. So the courses were already very popular. I was teaching intro to hip hop studies mm -hmm. and interactive narrative and um, experimental digital art. Um, Dr. Morris was already teaching Afrofuturism. Dr. Brock was also teaching technoculture. Uh, we were already doing this. So what we wanted to say was, okay, well, here's an opportunity to fill a gap, not only just the gap that aligns with the local imperatives, but also the DEI strategic plan that's at the school level, at the college level, and at the institute level. So these are the opportunities that a minor like this affords. Our intern, Lennox Johnson, has a question. She says, to what extent is the intersection of media and racial politics in the context of black culture re relevant for students entering the modern workforce? It's a good question. Oh, that's a great question. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that we can approach even thinking about why that's relevant. You know, Many students are entering into the create, many of the students that we interact with are into making and designing and creating things. Um, when they graduate, they mm -hmm. want to go into journalism. They want to go into film. Um, many of them want to go into game design mm -hmm. um, in some sort of HCI influenced field. Um, many of them also, if they're coming in from out of the school, they want to go into engineering um, or any type of modern language. When you have a cultural approach and take a cultural approach, specifically when looking at the ways in which people of color contribute to the way in which we even think about design and stuff, mm -hmm. <laughs> This gives us an opportunity to make 
it way more open-minded and way more beneficial for society. So when we think about a student that may take a course in intro to black cultural production, for instance, which mm -hmm. is the first course that's gonna be taught in the fall. Um, intro to black media studies is the other introductory course. So when a student comes in and takes that course, the way that I teach it is through a hip hop perspective. Not only are we going to be talking about a particular moment in the music, but we'll be taking a cultural approach to how things have gotten produced through that music. Mm -hmm. Hip hop is something that is that everybody is impacted by in some shape, form or fashion. And I believe because it's already baked with these cultural affordances around social justice and innovation and schooling, students get the benefit of that. And they're able to take those concepts and those context clues and apply them to their specific gifts and field and major when they get out, I believe that they are more prepared to understand how to problem solve, mm -hmm. to not only how to make, but also how to think about the world in more diverse and inclusive ways. If you just joined us, I'm in conversation with Georgia Tech professor Joycelyn Wilson, and we're talking about Georgia Tech's new Black Media Studies minor within the School of Literature, Media, and Communication. Professor, I gotta tell you, I was looking at a course that you're going to be teaching here. It's science, tech, and race. And through this, it says it's going to examine specific historic, historical and contemporary construction of race within the prevailing scientific theories and ideologies in order to determine the role played by race in scientific and technological culture. Yeah. So that is a, so that's, that course is LMC 3306. So let me talk to you a little bit about how this works mm -hmm. on the book. So that course is a general course that's taught in the school. It's LMC 3306, mm -hmm. Science, Race, Technology. And what you just read is basically the general description of how and what the course should teach. Mm -hmm. Whoever teaches that course takes their own approach. Really? Dr. Brock different approach to how he teaches it. I will take a different approach to how I teach it. The benefit here is what we noticed was his course and my course, particularly when teaching 3306, was are now two courses that are a part of the Black Media Studies minor. There were two very popular ones. So what we did was we took those two and turned them into separate courses. His is um, technoculture and mine is um, intro to cult intro to black cultural production. So the benefit of already having these courses on the books and teaching them under the general codes presented an opportunity to carve out a very specific minor mm -hmm. that allows students to dive deeper into the relationship that culture has to media and race and make. What has the feedback been so far? And are you able to, to gauge just how many students are, are really interested in this? Because I know I've, we've talked before, and your class mm -hmm. is always, always filled. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we believe that the minor is going to do well. Mm -hmm. um, the data shows that it will. Students sign up for our classes, and we 
part of being, you know, a professor and administrator and educator is really seeing the trends, particularly the historical and ideological, but also the pedagogical, the, the trends in teaching and learning. Um, it's important. And we saw that based off of um, the work that the former dean did mm -hmm. and the work that our current dean has picked up, we are feeling a gap at the school level that students have shown interest in for years. So providing this to them is based on what we've seen teaching the courses just as part of the, um, the, the, the general list of courses. Um, and the, the minor also exists within uh, some other minors, a mm -hmm. social justice minor is in the school as well as a science fiction minor. There are other ones. And so we're poised to be one of the more popular um, minors mm -hmm. because we are hitting the target at every level, the school, the college, and the institution. I got to tell y'all listeners, I love them. A listener sent me a note saying that program is dope. <laughs> <laughs> tell your listener I said thank you. <laughs> We're working hard. And by the way, for those that don't understand, dope is, in this instance, the context, dope is means it's good. It's good, it's, yeah. It's good. <laughs> Before we wrap up, let's focus on you a little, a little bit because you use hip hop and you use lyrics and you use origins of of hip hop in a, in, in a large majority of your classes. Why has this always been such an interest to you? And we're in both in, in full disclosure, you and I both are old hip hop heads. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it's of interest to me because I'm an educational researcher. Um, a lot of folks think that I have a PhD in hip hop and I don't. I have a PhD in educational anthropology and a bachelor's in mathematics. And I study patterns. And as a high school math teacher, I saw very early on that my students were impacted by, by hip hop in ways that I realized it could serve as a way of teaching. Um, because one of hip hop's affordances is schooling. Um, it's obsessed with school mm -hmm. and it's in the lyrics. As we think about where hip hop is going as it approaches its golden year, I mean, we're talking about a middle age cultural phenomenon. I think people forget that because it still exists and it's still hot, it's still trendy. Mm -hmm. But this culture on August 11th, 2023 will celebrate 50 years. Yep. And a year after that, the field will celebrate 30 years. Wow. So the question is, as a field, where are we now in the creation of, in using these lyrics and the sentiments that are in them, the hidden activism, particularly when it comes around schooling and design, how do we take those and begin to create critical frameworks and methodologies that are for hip hop and by hip hop? So let me ask that this, as we wrap up, and I do appreciate time, I gotta get in there because I'm gonna put you on the spot. I don't know if you've not, we've even asked this question to you before. You gotta give me your top, Five lyricists. I'm going to put you on the spot. Lyricists? Or yeah. Okay, so lyricists. Yeah. All right. There's a difference. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. So lyricists is pretty cool. And usually when I answer this question, it's based off what I'm listening to right now. Oh, so, come on. Yeah. All so, right. Um, and this is in no particular order. Please don't yeah. hold me to my <laughs> fire. But um, I am a huge Missy Elliott fan. I love Missy. Okay. Um, I 
am a huge <laughs> MC Light fan. Gotcha. Uh, I love Kendrick Lamar. Of course, I'm going to say Outkast because I love Big Andre mm -hmm. and the entire Goody Mob. Gotcha. Um, but that also includes Nas and Jay-Z and all the, you know, the 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 MCs of, of our time, Rakim. I mean, I could just keep going, but those are my top lyricists. Also, I'm a huge DOC fan. Really? The DOC? Okay. Uh, I right. like the DOC. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I, you know, I'm going to get in trouble. Look, what'd you say? He's a great writer. He is. He is. I'm going to get in a little trouble, but folks got to bear with me now. I'm going to rock with you on MC Light, Kendrick Lamar, Outkast, all the goody mob. But I, I'm going to throw in there, just because just that's who I am, I, I like I like Nas, I like I like Eminem, I like Most Def. Uh, you know, people going to get mad because if I don't mention Biggie, but yeah. I'm going <laughs> to slightly just give KRS-One a little, although he gets on my nerves sometimes, oh, yeah. and Lauryn Hill. Yes. All right. Thank you. For, right. we, our combined list is dope. All right. Now send me your emails and we'll take it from there. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> professor Joyce Wilson, who teaches in the School of Literature, Media and Communication, and also one of the professors in the new Black Media Studies minor at Georgia Tech. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. When are you going to have me come talk to the class? Next semester. I'm there. <laughs> okay. I'll see you soon. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. It is called a complicated racial history of the indigenous Creek Nation. Two centuries ago, this native tribe both enslaved and accepted black people as full citizens. Don't worry, we'll get to more about that in a moment. And then in the 1970s, revoked the citizenship of Black Creeks. In 2018, a group of Black Creek Indians, as they described themselves, held a press conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Here's attorney Demario Solomon Simmons. At the end of the Civil War and the treaties were being negotiated, there were five individuals who participated in those negotiations and signed that treaty of 1866. One of those individuals was a Creek of African descent or African Creek by the name of Cal Tom, who is my four-time great-grandfather. He signed that treaty, and in that treaty, you have a copy of it, all our media members and anyone else that wants a copy will give it to you. Article two of that treaty simply says, or clearly says, that Creeks of African descent shall have and enjoy all the rights and privileges of native citizens including an equal interest in the soil and national funds, and the laws of said nations shall be equally binding upon them and give equal protection of all such persons and all others whatsoever of race or color. That is where we are today. And that is where we still stand. We'll have an update about this lawsuit in just a moment. There's a lot to this story, and it's all explored in detail in a new book. It's called We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power. And it's by award-winning journalist and professor at Northeastern University, Caleb Gale. He'll be in town tomorrow for a talk at the Atlanta History Center, but we spoke ahead of his visit. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. It means so much. Hey, and fascinating. Hey, it's really fascinating. This book, Caleb, of course, is about history. But, you know, for our listeners who may not have any idea what we're about to talk about, let's inform them. Let's begin, I guess, in the beginning, as far as we can go back. How far back in terms of settling 
on the land in this nation will we find the Creek Nation? Because it's not just one specific tribe, correct? Correct, right? The Creek Nation is a larger federation of many other tribes. Um, and so as far back as perhaps much further back than we actually can probably recall mm -hmm. or even recount, there have been remnants of the Creek Nation or portions of the Creek Nation uh, that we recognize now that existed long ago as tribes uh, long beforehand. And for those that for to have a sense of place, I believe this is primarily when we talk about where they settled, where they live, was the southeastern portion of what now is the United States, Georgia, Alabama, parts of Florida. Correct. A, a great deal of the Creek Nation would have subsumed a great portion of where you are and where others are listening to you from right now. So it's interesting when we talk about, and this is what I've been reading, and, and so far I am mean, enjoying the book, it's a complicated racial history of Creek Nation. So I want to back up a little bit too. What led you to not only doing your research and, and detailing this, but the interest in this? Sure. You know, uh, my, my way into the story is probably stranger than most. Right. So my parents are Jamaican. Right. So I'm not I'm not a part of this nation. I, I approach this as a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, but as a kid, we moved from New York, where it seems like is the home of all Jamaican folks when they first come to the country um, and went to Oklahoma for reasons that escaped me even even now. But at any rate, when we came to Oklahoma, I distinctly remember that kids and for your listeners who are, who are listening, I, I'm, I'm a darker skinned black guy, kids who look just like me whose skin hued a similar color said to me, oh, I got Indian in me. That was the phrase that I heard, I mm -hmm. got Indian. And it was confusing, it was haunting to some extent because if they themselves could say that I got Indian in me while still being fully black, fully one thing and fully something else, perhaps the ways in which we construct and limit and narrow identity parameters, maybe something is wrong with that. And perhaps it requires of me to learn more about the the place that I'm in, the history that has shaped us all. Where did you begin your research? And if you had an opportunity, and I'm sure you did because you're interviewing people, where did you begin with unraveling here sort of the, the Creek Nation? Sure. I mean, I started with the guy that you had uh, playing, right? Uh, it was was watching, was on TulsaWorld.com, uh, the local paper's website, and saw a familiar face. And, and for those who are in Oklahoma, DeMario is the DeMario Solomon Simmons is not only Cal Tom's four-time great-grandson, he's also kind of the guy you call on when there's been a breach of someone's civil rights, especially on a matter of race. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I started. That's where the story that I initially wrote, and even the way that I initially approached the book was really from the prism of the lawsuit but then expanded to becoming so much more, really more so a work that blended memoir calls to action as well as a hefty amount of history. Let's talk about Kyle, and is it Kyle Tom? Am I saying it correctly? Yes, yes ma'am. Who is he? Who was he? Yeah, so, I mean, aside from being, you know, four-time great-grandfather of Demar Solomon Simmons, he was, um, for, for many who might have observed him less than what he actually was, right? For many who observed him, they assumed that he was nothing but a slave. But in actuality, Cal Tom's ancestry, his, his identity was so much more expansive than that, in part because he was, if you listen to DeMario or any of his other relatives, he was never enslaved. In fact, uh, he was an interpreter for the Creek Nation 
Um, he was a black man who not only was the interpreter of a Creek Nation, he also spent time as one of the chiefs within the Creek Nation, who, as DeMario said, was sent after the Civil War to negotiate a peace treaty with the U.S. government that included, among many other things, the emancipation of all black people who were held as slaves, as well as the granting of full citizenship rights, the opportunity for black people to fully participate without limitation in a nation at the very same time in the United States, even after they had supposedly emancipated black people from slavery, still slapped on all black people a badge of slavery that they really could never relinquish and remove themselves from. That's who Cow Tom was. Will you take the listener through if Cow Tom was also, because I've seen some folks say that perhaps he was being used or misled by the government too, in terms of what was gonna be promised and sort of his Mm. role? So I think it's important to take the posture that the US government, right, when they entered into treaties, it was, it was almost like a pacifier. It was an assumption that eventually the rug was going to be pulled out from under mm-hmm. them. And if you look at throughout the history of the United States government's interaction with the people who were here first, it's nothing but a trail of broken treaties. So one can try and make the argument that maybe Cowtown was being used, but in actuality, um, anyone who engaged in any sort of treaty discussion with the U.S. government was probably being used Mm -hmm. by that same logic, right? Because the goal was just to figure out a way to pull the rug out of people eventually. Did the Creeks, they own slaves? I want to get to that point. I have have listeners who send me emails, right? They get to that point, Rosa. Y'all so pushy. But we're going to get to that. So when we say this Native tribe owned slaves, we're talking enslaved Black Americans or Black, I want to be clear on that. That is sure. what we do know. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the the I think it's important to add some nuance, right? Yeah. So, it you know, in the United States, it was chattel slavery primarily, mm-hmm. right? Okay. I would have lost all of my humanity. You would have lost all of your humanity. We would have just become modes or means of production, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to produce things at low cost or no cost rather to our owners and our kids, our kids, kids, our kids, kids, kids would also be slaves. In the Creek Nation is a little different in that even though there are instances of chattel slavery, there are also instances of what was called kinship slavery, which one could find in West Africa where, yeah, you might live on someone's land, you might work their land, but you also can sit down and break bread with them. You didn't lose your humanity. Um, And on top of that, even if you were a slave, a chattel slave, your child was not going to be a slave. Your child's child was not going to be a slave. Slavery wasn't a hereditary badge that you had to wear continuously. And also, just as a really important caveat, the Creek Nation didn't run and hug and embrace slavery, Mm -hmm. right? It was something that was implemented on them through the process of what was was called civilization. It wasn't something that people were running towards. In fact, it was abhorred by the Creek Nation at first. Caleb, and I have a question from a listener who wants to know, was this common among many of the indigenous tribes here that they would have, they, they would enslave black folks? Not all, right? Um, but yeah, some did, right? Um, and it was definitely the case 
for what at that time was called the five civilized tribes, which are now called like the five nations or the five mm -hmm. tribes, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole. Um, all of them have a very checkered history when it comes to the treatment of black people. Let's talk about this Treaty of 1866. Break this down for our listeners. Sure. So, look, after the Civil War, or even during the Civil War, many of those nations, all of those nations were put in the unenviable position to sort of choose some sides. And some kind of bear hugged the Confederacy, some bear hugged the Union, but even still, factions within those bear hugged different portions of the, of the two sides in the Civil mm -hmm. War. And when the Union emerged victorious, they exacted punishment of varying degrees based upon the degree to which people bear hug the Confederacy. And so a small portion of the Creeks did so. And so the United States government, in its effort to re reconsolidate power after the Civil War, essentially said, look, we're, we're going to the, the treaties that you thought you had before, we're going to renegotiate. And it oftentimes led to the loss of power, autonomy and land. But in so doing, it also created a pathway in that very treaty to ensure that Black people who were owned by members of the Creek Nation would have to be, who would have to emancipate them, right? And this happened a year after what we now celebrate as Juneteenth. But even so doing, they did something that, something like Juneteenth never provided for, for folks, which was a guarantee of full citizenship rights, which for DeMario's ancestors led to extreme levels of prosperity. Well, let's talk about this, because within the Creek Nation, what was that legislative body like? What would the, would the, whatever they said, that was the, that was the, I hate using the word law, but that, that was it? Kind of what was the structure, structure of the Creek Nation for, to even make this determination and sort of lay down or, or agree to these tenets? Was it one person? How instrumental was this? Right. Was Kyle Tom the main one here? Or was it a like a legislative body? Sure, yeah. So you, you had things like the Creek National Council, which, you know, administered many of the rules and regulations within the nation. But yet and still, um, you know, the United States government also was providing to people, they were holding court oftentimes to dictate what was or wasn't going to happen, right? So you have other characters that are mentioned in the book that provide, you know, a little bit of a smoother access to the possibility for liberation and emancipation for Black people that formerly weren't there. So it wasn't just the Creek Nation, it wasn't just Cal Tom, it's also the concert of those folks working towards this, but then also external forces like the U.S. government requiring some change. So then, Caleb, we, the tenets of this treaty, as you write, the tenets of the treaty remained in effect until 1979, when Cal Tom's blackness injured his descendants' claim to their Creek heritage. Hmm. Dissect that for our listeners. What, what's happening here? Yeah, so in order to explain that, you have to kind of go back to the late 1800s mm -hmm. when the, the United States government saw Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma, as an opportunity for a lot of new white settlers. Um, and a guy named Henry Dawes created something called the Dawes Commission. I'm skipping over a lot of history, but I want to make sure your listeners get, sure. get the nuggets here. But essentially, that commission was deputized to try and assimilate, right, uh, the, the members of the Creek Nation, Cherokee Nation, and so on. And so what they did was they dictated the terms on which people could be defined as Creek and then allocated land, usually a smaller plot of land in a private way, mm -hmm. which is antithetical to the Creek tradition of communitarian living, communal life. Um, and in so doing, they created two, uh, you know, several different roles or citizenship leisures, if you will. 
And a lot of the people who looked like I do or look like you do were placed in what's called the freedmen role. Mm -hmm. And those who didn't were allowed the opportunity to become black. But now to the Creek Nation at that time, it didn't even matter. But in 1979, a guy named Claude Cox, who was then the principal chief of the Creek Nation, heralded this worry that there's a chance that the quote unquote Indian might lose control, which is a way, in a way saying like, there's a chance that there is a, an opening perhaps for a dilution of our identity through the creation of opportunities for black people in this nation. And that's something, Caleb. We, we've, it wow. Is, we, we have a whole nother so show about that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So he used the very same tools that Dawes did. And so anyone who was on the Creek Freedman role, right, DeMario's family included, all of a sudden became too black to be Creek. Ooh, I wish I had a whole nother half hour with you. Okay, so <laughs> we 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 I played that clip from Demario, and there's been a lawsuit where Black Creek Indians they want and now it's a Muscogee, if I'm saying it correctly, Creek Nation. They want their citizenship restored in a federal lawsuit. I want to ask you this because does this can this federal lawsuit have any jurisdiction over the Creek Nation? It's a great question. Excellent question. We saw that to be the case over the past couple of years with the McGirt case in which they decided to, um, the Supreme Court decided to re, um, re re restate that the eastern portion of Oklahoma is in fact, when it comes to certain jurisdictional questions, the Creek Nation. So yes, um, the, the U.S. District Court, the federal court system is the only court system that has any sort of real governance over the state of um, Indian affairs with with the case of with with in this case. So if essentially they couldn't go to like the state supreme court mm -hmm. because they have no jurisdiction, right? This is a question of treaties made between the U.S. government and the Creek Nation, and so the U.S. government at the federal level is the only one who can adjudicate this, either them or the Creek Nation's internal court system. So where are we now? We're just. Sure. That's a great question. Yeah. No, I mean, they were they were essentially dismissed without prejudice, which means that they can reassemble mm -hmm. a case. And, you know, we'll see what ends up happening on that front. But they've also, you know, in partnership with other freedmen from other nations, have really launched an effort, an ongoing effort to try and find if there's a policy remedy. They were testifying before Maxine Waters' commission. They were doing educational conferences, identifying if there are legal remedies. So I would say that the struggle continues. We should note that I believe it's the Cherokee and Seminole freedmen, as they are described, they have won citizenship yes. within their respective tribes. So there is some, if there's some optimism to be had, it's, it's based on those two lawsuits. Caleb, what's been the feedback? And have you talked to the, the Creek Nation about why they why even continue this now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when I was doing the reporting and research for the book, there was reticence to speak to me and for for clearly understandable reasons. Sure. Right. Um, um, reasons that that I don't even fault them for. Um, but uh, I think like, you know, the, the, the feedback on this has been you know, resoundingly positive, and I'm excited to to engage with more people. I'm excited to be pushed back. Journalism is but the first draft of history, so I'm so excited to see the drafts that come thereafter. And here we have the intersection of two communities, two populations, who have contributed, obviously, to this, the founding of this nation before and then continues. 
And although some want to put under the umbrella of marginalized and definitely oppressed and, and persecuted peoples, and then the racial politics, if you will, or identity within the intersection of these two groups. It's not the first time we've seen this, but it continues. What's next for you? And are will you continue with this? Yeah, I mean, what's immediately next for me is is being in Atlanta with you all to to have this conversation in person. Look at you doing marketing work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the next book actually covers another untold story about Edward McKay called Push Ahead, mm-hmm. um, which which details the life of one of the most little known, but probably one of the most impactful black leaders, the first statewide elected politician, black statewide elected politician in the old west, who had the interesting and highly problematic idea to try to colonize Indian territory and make it a state for black people exclusively. Interesting. It's called We Refuse to Forget a True Story of a True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity and Power. It's by journalist, award winning journalist, author Caleb Gale. Extraordinary part of American history. Caleb, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Rose. Good conversation. And Caleb Gale will be in conversation tomorrow at the Atlanta History Center. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our intern is Lennox Johnson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And also, this Friday... First ever, 1 p.m., live, Closer Look Live at the Atlanta History Center. Join us. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.